Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I want to thank uh, Rabbi Mondo for doing me the tremendous honor of inviting me here to speak to you. Uh, it's not the first time I've been here to speak to uh, groups such as you, but I want to tell you that it gives me a special pleasure to speak to students, and particularly medical students. It uh, reminds me of the time which, not so long ago, when I was a little bit younger than you people are today, uh, but it, it gives me great pleasure to see a new generation, a generation which is learning a different medicine than I was taught, uh, fields which didn't exist in my day, and which I had to learn with great difficulty in the last uh, 10 years, 5 years, 2 years, 1 year, even yesterday or the day before. I, I, one never stops learning in Bokushem until 120, one has to, one is still a student. And so when I look at you people, um, I kind of see myself uh, um, as, as someone who uh, has still a lot to learn. Uh, this is talking about medicine. Halacha, of course, doesn't even start. Uh, as, as you heard, uh, my only reason that I have a right to stand here before you and, and talk to you about halacha of this or any other subject, um, it's not that I run two homes or one home. I have two, two hats. Um, one hat is the hat of a, of a, a physician, a doctor. I spent most of the 24 hours of my day uh, working at, uh, in the hospital uh, with patients and research and all the rest of it. And I wear another hat. The second hat is that of a mailman. And a mailman has a job. He takes letters from Reuven and gives it to Shimon. And I believe that I was created in this world to take letters from Rav Shimon Zaman Aubach and Rav Yoshev and all the other great people that I had the zechut to meet, Moshe Feinstein, and pass it on to whoever wants to come and listen to me. And uh, this is my second hat, and that's the one I'm wearing now. Uh, Hashem, I'm retired, and uh, so I'm also a butlon. The model says you have to have ten butlonim in town. I'm number eleven, and so that's how that's how I, I Hashem, spend my day. Um, to get on with my subject, uh, this is the subject that I, I, I thought might interest you most. Um, I'm going to go through a, a, a gamut of, uh, of shilas, of uh, questions that have been asked uh, over the years, starting from the obvious into fields which are, which are new and, and modern, and hope to give you some idea of the interrelationship between halacha on the one hand and, and on, ongoing and new medical knowledge uh, that comes up um, from, almost from day to day. I think um, we start off uh, as kind of before, before marriage starts, that's before Shiduchim, there's the seminal teshuva of uh, the Ikrat Moshe. Um, as I said before, I had the sechut of meeting Rav Moshe Zatzal uh, on two separate occasions, and, and um, it's very difficult to describe a person like him who, who I'm talking, going back now, well over 40 years, and uh, I was a youngster, and I sat by him, by his side at the table. He treated me as if I was a godel ador, as if I was the greatest Talmud Hochom. We talked to each other in Hebrew because I didn't speak Yiddish, and his English was difficult. So we talked to each other in Hebrew, and, and the humility of the person, um, it was just indescribable. But then one remembers that Moshe Rabbeinu was only Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest person who ever lived, the greatest Navi who, who ever lived, who will ever live, only because he was a Ish Moshe, a Nav, he was the humblest of all people. 
And so it's, no, it's not surprising that all the Gedolim I have met, um, without exception, are, are, are of the humblest of the humblest. You see the homes in which they live, in which they live, the surroundings in which they, are, in which they, they learn and, and teach and, and, and meet people. And one realizes that uh, for them, this world is just a, a corridor to lead to the next world. And, and from, they can spend their lives preparing for that, for that uh, moment when they will reach the real world uh, and not the one in which we live today. So this is just Tshuva on, on, on what one has to do before Shidduchim. At the time that he wrote this Tshuva, which was many, many years ago, the problem was Tay-Sachs. And this was one of the first diseases that could be tested for in the uh, young people who were about to get married. And the question that arose there was, should one do this? And if you do this, at what time in your life are you going to do this? At what time are you going to have to start worrying that you're a carrier or not a carrier? There was a lot of misunderstanding about this. Most, uh, Many, many people thought that if you were a carrier, then it doesn't matter who your future wife or husband is going to be, your children are going to suffer from taste tax. And people didn't quite understand, the man in the street didn't quite understand the meaning of the word carry. And so there was a lot of education to be done to, to tell people that if you were a single carrier in the family and your wife or husband were not, there was no chance of children having taste tax. Um, and uh, people who do this uh, do this by numbers, uh, you never know whether you're a carrier or not. All you know is that the other side that you intend to marry, it's okay to marry him or her. And so you never know whether you're a carrier or not, and I think that's one of the good things about this. But anyway, Rav Moshe Zatzal deals with this question, and uh, that's the uh, part of his, part of his, uh, his answer is tshuva, and as you see here, he talks about uh, the getting married and uh, doing the test in males at the age of 20 and in females at the age of 18. Obviously, these are not meant to be Torah Messinai. It depends on what kind of uh, background you have, whether you're Hasidish or, 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 or Litvish and so on and so forth, depending on what age you start looking, looking to, to become married, uh, later or earlier. And any, at any case, uh, earlier than later, one should, one should obviously uh, advise that this test be done. And Rav final sentence there, it is fitting that before one marries, one should be tested. You cannot believe the, the immense harm and the immense sorrow and, and pain it causes to a couple, a young couple, who find out too late that they are carriers of some dread disease and there's a 50% chance of their children being affected by that disease. I remember um, years and years ago, um, a young a young Bochor, who was, uh, who was uh, learning in yeshiva, um, met a young lady, and they were tested, and they were found to be both carriers of Tay-Sachs. Uh, but things had already gone uh, far with, 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 their, with their meeting each other and, and wanting each other, and they decided that they were going to get married no matter what, and that they would be strong enough to withstand the, the forces and, and, and stresses that would come upon them after their marriage. Um, they were advised, obviously, not to get married, but they were, they were strong in their belief that they would be able to stand this. And they got married, and she became pregnant, and the world fell apart. What we're going to do? What we're going to do? What kind of child we're going to have? One in 50, one in two, that this child will be Tay-Sachs. And everyone knows uh, Tay-Sachs is a disease that um, life expectancy is four years at the most. No one has ever lived more than four years that I know of, anyway. Um, and so, and the baby, from 
maybe born absolutely normal. But very, very quickly, neurological disease steps in, blindness, paralysis, suffering from the, for the baby, the suffering for the parents, and, you, and it's all wasted, so to speak, because inevitably this child's going to die within a year, two, three, and at the very most four. So there is no, no way you can get around this. But um, I'll come back to that because an interesting child came up at that time, which I'll talk about later. That's so much for, for, for that piece. Now, this is something which is uh, fairly new, certainly in Israel, this is something which is uh, really hot off, hot off the press, uh, a year, maybe two years that people have been talking about it, and where, where I uh, worked for, for most of my years that I've been in Israel, some <clears throat> 27 years that I've been working in Sharet Tzedek, and um, we have a very good genetic department there, and they've been doing this now for, for some months with, with a lot of success. And this is something that, again, a young couple should know about. Um, what is this test all about? Just for those who, who uh, are not quite uh, certain about it. First of all, there's a whole list, and that last etc. is probably the most important word in the whole list, because that etc. is being pushed further and further away, and there are more and more diseases which they can now test for and, and, and save a lot of heartache. Um, you can see that theoretically you can do it for any genetic condition, provided it's a, it's a single gene mutation and so on. And the more we know about uh, the genes of, of any particular disease, the more this, that previous list becomes longer and longer. Now what do you do? The first stage is obviously I... What's that? It's not my slide. Um, IV, uh, IVF and then the, the single cell starts to divide, you get to the stage of six to eight cells. One, this is done with maybe five or six uh, embryos are formed, uh, taken from the mother and, and fertilized, and um, uh, one, one cell from each one of these is taken, tested for abnormal genetic material, and if there is, the answer is yes, that, that particular group of cells, that particular embryo is discarded, and then the finally one, two, or maybe at the most three normal embryos are reinserted, and you have an almost 100%. It's not 100%. It's almost 100%. It depends very much on the, on the laboratory doing this. This is not an easy test. There's an awful lot of pitfalls in, 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 in this thing, but you can almost uh, sign on the dotted line that the child will be normal. And the, the question comes up halakhically, is this permissible or not permissible? I will remind you that IVF here is not done because the, the parents cannot have children. They're perfectly capable of having children. The problem is they don't want children with a, a genetic defect. And the question is, can we avoid uh, uh, for this young couple uh, to have a genetically disturbed child? So it's not the usual uh, uh, scenario that IVF is being used for. Okay, so the, 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 the um, problem arises is do you just, do you, I mean, obviously it would be too silly to even, even say this, but you know, every young couple can say, I want PGD to be done. I want to be sure that I have nothing wrong with me. And uh, it, it, life will become very artificial. And so obviously the question is, where's the red line? Who do you do this test for? Halakhically, where would, this, would you be able to get permission from Arav to do this? And the two uh, Rabboni that I uh, 
can tell you about Rav Neuvet. Uh, those of you who do not recognize the name, this is the author of Shimirat Shabbat Yehil Khatar. Uh, both in Hebrew and in English, is probably in our present day the most sold halachic book that there ever was uh, in our particular generation. And, and uh, there are many homes which don't have a shas, but they'll have a Shemar Shabbos And he is my Rebbe. I, I uh, consult with him uh, whenever I Hashem, whenever I need him. He's there, and uh, by telephone or seeing him or whatever. And Rabbi Yoshif, who I uh, also have the zechut to be able to see from time to time. And they both permit it, but you will see that there is a rider to their permission. This is not a straightforward carte blanche permission. Rav Neuver permits this in principle, and Rav Yoshif permits it if there's only already one child born with the disease. And to summarize this, certainly in Sharetzedek, where permission has to be given or, or received on every single case, the, the, the um, IVF department will not undertake this unless they have uh, a permission from one of the robotic, usually one of these two, um, that it's okay. On what basis is this, is this uh, permission given? And one of them you have here, there is a child already born with that disease, and therefore you have, you have cast iron proof that this couple are both carriers for that disease, and it's then to avoid the second and other children that this is permitted. And Rav Noivet uh, permits in principle if it is already known that they are both carriers of the disease because there are other members of the family, siblings and so on, who have the disease. So their very first child it will be permitted for them to, to undergo PGD. Um, the next step is uh, CVS, chorionic uh, villus sampling. Uh, I, I presume I don't have to explain what this is all about, but it usually uh, follows uh, uh, straightforward sonography. The, the pregnant uh, mother, uh, mother-to-be has sonography on a routine basis, and lo and behold, the sonographer is not too happy with what he sees inside there. It sounds like it. there's going to be a, a genetic disease or physical or whatever. And the next step is to do CVS. One of the biggest problems in halacha is that, uh, certainly in my experience, is that most people don't ask before. They ask afterwards, when it's too late. Um, no one ever comes and says, should I have sonography? It's today accepted um, that uh, you can't have a child without sonography, very much as like you can't be married without, without a video. It's much more important than the aiding. Um, and, and therefore, everyone has sonography. And then they have sonography, and then the doctor says, oh, oh I think you really ha- have to have a CVS test. And the mother says, okay, she doesn't know what it's all about. She has it done. What, are the, what is the problem of the CVS? Well, what's, what's the halachic problem in having a CVS test? Never mind the results, but what is the problem about this? Well, number one, the problem is um, that there is a loss, fetal loss. In other words, you do this because you think that the child is going to be abnormal when it's born, and you may in fact lose a normal child. So there is a risk in, in, in having this test done in the first place. Um, secondly, what are you going to do with the result if it is abnormal? There are two possible, well, obviously there are three possibilities. One is that they see there's something will be normal, which is unlikely because usually a good sonographer, and many times a woman will go to two different people, uh, will, will spot a difficulty. They will spot a, a, a quote-unquote abnormal child. Uh, so the other two possibilities is the CVS sampling will be definitive 
this woman has this disease, X, Y, or Z, and, and, and everyone knows where they stand. Very often, this is a question mark uh, uh, diagnosis. We think, uh, at this very moment in time, I'm dealing with a case in L.A. of a, of a child that's um, got some kind of genetic defect. They, they actually have cells from the CVS. They can tell there is, there is a double mutation in this, in, this, in this baby. They haven't the faintest idea what it is. This is the first kind ever reported in the literature. At least it's not yet been reported. They don't know what it's going to do, but it's something very abnormal. The sonographer can also see something in the area, in the region of the heart, and he's not quite sure whether this is an abnormal heart, abnormal vessel, or just nothing. It's just some, some, some fat tissue. So this baby is lying there, and, and no one knows what this baby is. And the question really arises here, what do you do with this, with this baby? You, you, you abort it because there is a possibility of genetic disease, cardiac disease. Or do you say, no, wait till the baby is born, and then we'll see. You may not have too much time to see, because if there is, uh, as they suspect, a, a serious uh, genetic disease, this baby may be born and require immediate intubation. Um, and by the time you've intubated it, uh, and then discovered that it's, uh, this is a nephil, nephil in, in, in halachic terms mean a baby which is not viable, which will die within 30 days uh, without medical support. I mean real support, not just putting it in an incubator. Uh, in, this, in this situation, this particular baby, with this possibility of a heart defect, one can envisage that this baby if it survives at all, will need multiple cardiac surgery over a period of year two, four years, five years. Uh, and just think about this uh, to this baby. And, and at the end of all of this, you may have an abnormal baby in, in terms of his brain function and, and mental faculties and so on. So, and these are very difficult shilas. And, and, and there really is no cast and black or white answer, you know, do or don't do. Very often you have to say, wait and see. The pediatrician says wait and see, the institution says wait and see, so why should the halakhic say wait and see? He has no answer to these things. Um, and so the question then arises, is it, is it okay to do, to do this, this test in the first place, halakhically? Say you, you, you've been to a, an obstetrician and he has done sonography, which is more or less accepted today, and, and, and he finds a defect and he says, have a CVS done, or I've skipped one, which is amniocentesis, obviously, and the question is, uh, what are you going to do with this after he's done the, he's got the cells in his hand, he, he's got a name to the disease, and he tells, he tells the mother, this is a, this is a, a trisomy, this is a, this is a fragile X, or whatever, one of the million, million possibilities, all of which have, have uh, tremendous repercussions on the couple, and, and obviously on the baby. Um, as, as medical science stands today, uh, we have very little that we can do to treat most of these. I mean, spinal bifida today is becoming treatable in utero. Um, but, you know, five years ago, baby had spinal bifida, it was born with spinal bifida. What do you do about it? And that could mean a catastrophic baby with paralysis in, in both legs or even higher up with all sorts of, uh, of, uh, of problems with infection and, 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 and urinary tract problems and, 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 and so on. It could be really, really catastrophic. What do you do with, it, with this fetus? You, you abort it because it has no claim to life? Or no, this is a baby which from the halfway down to is abnormal, but the rest of it is, is perfectly normal. This is a baby and, and there are 
people in this world who were born with spina bifida and have been very productive. How do you measure this? Is, is this the productivity? Is he a first-class citizen, second-class citizen? And, and the bottom line really is that it, unless medicine can find more and more treatable diseases in utero uh, or soon after birth, um, the only option of an abnormal CVS finding is an abortion. And uh, that becomes a, a tale all on its own. We well, have to remember we're dealing not just with a baby who is, uh, who is uh, abnormal in this way or that way, who has this, that, or the other defect. We're dealing with a, with a Jewish neshama. And, and, and a Jewish neshama is, is never abnormal. It's part and parcel of a Baruch It comes from, from, from part of, of the Shekhinah itself. And, and, and that's what we are talking about. The, the halak, the, 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 the posek is looking at the neshama, not at the body. And, and uh, no matter how disabled the body is, in fact, there are some who say the more disabled the body is, the greater is the, is the, is the neshama kosher. Um, someone who is born and is so mentally affected that he doesn't have to keep any mitzvahs. Okay, like some a severe Down syndrome. Very lovable children, but they may be so severely mentally def- defective that they are no longer, they're not mechuyiv to keep any mitzvahs. First of all, they can't for all sorts of reasons, or, and they don't have any, any obligation to keep these mitzvahs. And uh, it's been said in the name of Hazor Ish that uh, these, these children have an ashama that doesn't require rectification like yours and mine. Uh, the reason we have to keep mitzvahs is uh, obviously the most important reason, and the only true reason, is that because God said, put on to fill it. God said, don't mechal Shabbos. That's the only reason why you have to keep mitzvahs. But if you want to try and, and, and kind of uh, uh, talk about it and, uh, on a little deeper scale, then we, our nishamas, are brought into this world in order to make them even purer than when they were given to us, to, rea- to, rise, to raise ourselves in the Kedusha. And these kids don't have any need to do this. They're so pure. So if we look at it in that way, it's a different picture entirely than looking at the physical state of this, of this baby. And therefore, most post-scheme, most post-scheme will not allow an abortion uh, when you have a genetically uh, uh, determined disease in the fetus unless there are very, very special conditions which can be met, which uh, I won't go into, uh, into now. An interesting uh, uh, experiment that was done uh, fairly recently, usually CVS is done at 10 to 12 weeks of pregnancy. And as I said before, there is 2 to 3% risk of miscarriage of a normal fetus, entirely normal fetus. In, in addition to this, there's a lot of uh, talk in the literature about, uh, about defects, particularly limb defects, in, in these babies who have had CVS as opposed to, to babies who have not. That's on the, on the, on the negative side of the, of, of the test. And as I said before, today, as we stand today, there is no other reason to do the CVS except to to advise the mother to have an abortion, um, which is not permitted halakhically. An interesting experiment, which I'll come to in a minute, but I first want to digress a little bit. For those of you who are familiar with the the Gemara, the Gemara says a very interesting thing about about a fetus. Maybe you've all heard about the 40-day period. before 40 days and after 40 days in the life of a fetus. And Gemara says that before 40 days, the, uh, the fetus is considered to be merely water. 
Maya Be'alba in the, in the Loshan of the in, the in the language of the Gemara. Fetus less than 40 days is merely water. Uh, anyone who's ever seen a picture of a, of a sonograph of a baby 20 days old, <laughs> it's nothing like water. There's a baby there. There's, there's, there's solid, solid matter there. And so one has to try and explain this, what, what Hazal, what the Gemara talks about as being merely water. Now, I'm not claiming that this is a valid explanation I'm going to give you. It's my explanation. Okay? And you can take it and leave it with a small or large pinch of salt. But uh, it, it, it helps me to, to try and understand uh, things which, which may not be obvious on, uh, on surface. What do they mean when Hazal say it's merely water? Why do they, why do they describe something? Obviously, Hazal didn't have ultrasounds. They didn't have x-rays. There is no record that I know of that Hazal actually examined a woman patient. Uh, and I'm not sure that doctors in those days examined a woman patient. Today, you, want to, you, you, don't have, you don't need ultrasound to tell that a woman is three months pregnant or less. Uh, but, but, but nevertheless, they, they made a statement. We have to try and, uh, at least uh, for ourselves, try and explain, explain this. First of all, we have to realize that gynecologists don't know how to count. That's the first, the first thing you have to realize. They come from the first day of the last period. And for a woman who keeps mitzvahs and goes to the mikveh, uh, the, the, and even if she doesn't go to the mikveh, the, the conception is usually 14 days after that. By the time she's, she's kept, uh, she's kept uh, the Hilchas Nida and so on and so forth, and, and if we take that the, that the, the um, release of the egg in, in a woman is, is about 14 days from next period, and we take a normal period for 28 days, we're bang in in the middle of the 14th day. And therefore, whatever count the gynecologists give, you have to subtract two weeks, 14 days. So when we talk about 40 days, six weeks in Chazal, in the Gemara, we're talking about six weeks, 40 days from conception, which is 56 days, eight weeks from the first, from the first day of the last period. And one has to battle with that when you, when you, get, a, when you get a report from, uh, from the gynecologist. As I said before, the feet is clearly visible on sonography as a form being long, long, long before 40 days, and, and this is what we're trying to grapple with at this moment. Here you see uh, a fetus at 28 days. Now, this is 28 days from, 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 uh, from conception. I, I have to jump because I, I couldn't find a good photograph uh, of a fetus uh, uh, later than that. But just look at this fetus. This is not water. I mean, you don't have to be, uh, you don't have to put on binoculars to see that this is not water. There's a solid being there. And this is merely water in, in, in the Gemara. You see the umbilical cord on the left. Um, the head and the body and some kind of a tail. You can just about begin, begin to see the beginning of, an, of, a, of the arm. Uh, just notice this, this head. I don't think you would be forgiven if I didn't tell you that this was a fetus of a mother to believe me if I would tell you this was a fetus of a cow or a sheep. There is no feature here that differentiates this form from that of an animal uh, as apart from a human being. I mean, use a bit of examination, go, uh, imagination, go along with me, and, and, and this, this is this uh, particular picture. Now we come to 35 days, which is uh, coming close to the 40-day period, and again, you will see, perhaps even more so, uh, this, is, this is far from that of a, of a, of a uh, picture of, of, a, of a human being. 
I mean, I wouldn't like to, to see a baby with that kind of face uh, after it's born. Um, again, the limbs are, are more formed, uh, and there we are. And then look what happens at 50 days. This, this is a baby. This is not a cow. This is not a sheep. This is a baby. A rather big forehead, but okay. But I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no question that this is a baby, and this baby will be born absolutely normal. And so I think one has to differentiate on sonography between what is a form of a baby and what is the form of something which is not quite sure what we're talking about uh, in the first place. Now, I'm quoting here from a textbook of uh, obstetrics uh, published last year, the 20-something edition, I can't remember now. Uh, and look what it says there. Organogenesis occurs from days 28 to 56. 56 is 40 days. It is characterized by the formation of organs, the face forms. That's what we're talking about. The face forms at around about 40 days. The heart tubes, forget about that, because the heart beats long before 40 days. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the, the, the outside features of this, of this fetus. And for me, the most important part of the whole thing is this, the face forms. And this is the textbook, 8th edition, uh, I exaggerated. Um, the fetal period begins after eight weeks of life, subtract 14 days, you're bang on 40 days. And, and I don't think he ever saw Gomorrah in his life, this, this, this guy, but, but there we are. 40 days is when the fetal period begins, and that is the official definition of a fetus uh, as opposed to pre-fetal life. Now, coming back to what I told you about doing CVS. New England Journal some years ago, this is, this is a group in, in, in Canada. They took a, a number of from couples, orthodox Jewish couples, who, uh, who um, had problems of, of uh, genetic disease in the family, and they did uh, CVS before 40 days, found about 35, 36, 37 days of fetal life by our calculation. And they did CVS examination on these, on these uh, young mothers. And um, this is, this is uh, I'm sorry, I'm completely, I'm completely wrong. This is, I'm sorry, this is something else. Uh, New England Journal 88. Look what happens here. 30 percent. 30% of spontaneous abortions occur before the woman is even aware that she's pregnant. They did something, they took absolutely normal couples, uh, I think it was the United States, uh, not necessarily Jewish, couples who were living a normal life. And they examined every single woman's urine daily by, by very, very uh, ultra, ultra uh, specialized techniques, radi using radioactive material and so on and so forth, in the urine. They could tell the day on the, which the woman conceived. When she conceived, they didn't tell her that she had conceived. And they followed these couples for months um, during, this, during this study, and they found that 30% of these women had a spontaneous abortion, spontaneous miscarriage, and the woman thought that she was having a delayed, rather heavy period, because she never dreamt that she was, she was uh, pregnant. She never knew she was pregnant. And since she'd only missed one period, well, the period came a bit late. And this shows something else that when, you're, when you are a fetus before 40 days, you have a 30% chance of not 
living. In other words, your life is very dicey uh, before 30 days. I would like to say that if we put these two factors together, one, the formation of the face and body, which is not complete until 40 days. Number two, that life is very, very risky. 30% is, is less than, less than uh, the majority, but it's a very, very significant minority. This may be the reason why Hazal called it merely water. It was an exaggerated way of saying that this baby has not yet got a firm hold on life. It hasn't yet got its roots in this world. And therefore, because of that situation, that's what they call it. As I said before, take it or leave it. Now, uh, this is what I just said. Now, the experiment I wanted to talk about. They took 82 couples, Orthodox women, this is a study from Canada, um, and at 7 to 8 weeks, as opposed to 10 to 12 weeks, they did CVS, in other words, um, less than 40 days. The miscarriage rate, as I showed you before, is 2 to 3 percent in, in, if you do the CVS between 10 to 12 weeks. In this study, it was 5 percent, almost double. And the question arises, is this permissible or not permissible? They had a, they had a uh, in, in the study, they could diagnose Tay-Sachs disease less than 40 days, and less than 40 days, there's a good possibility, a very good possibility of being able to get permission from a RAF to, to have an induced abortion. I heard from Rav Ovas, that's how, I'm going back to that original couple that I talk, uh, told you about, the young couple, the Shiva Bokor, who got married, and both knew they were carriers. At that time, uh, Rav Ovas said, Chaval, Chaval, that at that time there was no possibility of doing this test before 40 days, because if it was done and it was proven to be positive, and of course the test had a high sensitivity uh, uh, and so on, he would have given permission to, for the couple to have had an abortion. So therefore in these women, um, if the test is positive, there is a real good reason, uh, if they're both carriers or, or they have at least one child who has Tay-Sachs, that this test can be carried out. Whether this, uh, this is available today in, in, in all parts of the world, I don't know. But it's certainly something to think about. Uh, the study was published in, in, uh, three or four years ago, and um, the question now is, is this permissible or not? Well, the first thing that, I, that you have to see in this, in this study is that the miscarriages did not occur at the time that the test was done. They occurred days or even weeks after the test was done. But no, no question that there was double the rate of uh, CVS done at 10 to 12 uh, weeks and these people who had a lot of experience, I'm not talking about people with two left hands, these are people who had a lot of experience in doing CBS, so you can't blame them. It's the question of doing it so early on that, that causes these, uh, these things. That's number one. Number two, we have in halacha a concept of psychration. Psychration means I do act one. And the reason I do Act 1 is because I want something from that Act 1, and inevitably something else happened, which is number 2. And the classical example given in, 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 in uh, the Kumar is a father who wants to give his child a toy, the child is screaming and crying, he wants a toy, and, and uh, there's no supermarket around the corner in the time of Hazal to go and buy a toy. So he takes the chicken, he chops up the chicken's head, and gives the child the head to play with. And the child is perfectly happy to play with the chicken's head. 
Now you can't chop off the head of a chicken, not even today, and, and have a live chicken at the end of the story. Uh, the chicken's going to die the moment you cut it off. You have no intention of killing the chicken. That's not the reason for the exercise. You want to pacify your child. If you do this on a weekday, great, nothing's gone wrong. But if you do this on Shabbos, then you mahal Shabbos. You've killed a living thing on Shabbat. And uh, this, would be, this would be something which is, which is uh, you violated the Shabbat by Torah law. This is called secretion. The father had no intention of killing. He wanted to pacify his child. But inevitably, the chicken died. The difference between that and this is that the chicken dies immediately. He pacifies his child. In this case, it happens some time later, and this is not secretion. The second question is, when you do something, are you satisfied with what you did? If the secretion, the act that you do, even though it's not what you wanted, it's inevitable. You want it to happen, that's secretion the nichale, it's something that you want. In this situation, the gynecologists weren't looking to, to do abortions at the time they did the test, they were doing a test. And therefore, by Torah law, this act should be permitted in these circumstances. I went to see uh, my, my Rebbe of Neuvachrita, and he said that this is okay, that this is performed. Uh, forget about the last, the last line, uh, it's not relevant at this stage. Um, and as far as he's concerned, this, this is okay. I spoke to, um, to he also quoted Rav Olbach. I myself spoke to Rav Olbach when he was alive about this. And as I just told you, uh, he would have permitted, had it been possible in those days, to uh, abort a Tay-Sachs baby before or 40 days after conception. Okay, so uh, that's, that's this part of the, of the study. I want to talk about something which is also very much in the news, and that's uh, cancer genes. I'm quoting from a paper in, in the New England Journal of Medicine, and uh, I've only brought four examples, but there are many more. The most obvious one, the one that most is written about, is the BRCA gene, the breast cancer gene, number one, number two, which is responsible for both uh, breast cancer and, and ovarian cancer. Um, breast cancer, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna choose which of those you're gonna have, choose breast cancer. And the reason is that breast cancer can be diagnosed early, both by self-examination, by a physician, and if not, by, if not manually, then by sonography and by, by uh, other, other uh, non-invasive techniques. You can diagnose the disease and you can treat it early um, with fairly good results. Ovarian cancer is a different kettle of fish. There is no way that I know of that a manual examination by a gynecologist can diagnose an early ovarian cancer. They're too small. And the problem is that even though they're too small, they metastasize while they're small, while they're not diagnosable. In fact, there are numerous reports in the literature of women who have been under, who wanted to have uh, ovarectomy, ovarectomy for other reasons, nothing to do with cancer. And the gynecologist uh, takes out the ovaries, cuts it out, he cuts the frozen section there, they look perfectly normal there, absolutely normal. Sensitive path lab, there's cancer in one or both of the ovaries. Uh, it was the woman's muzzle that at the time that he did it, he, there were no metastases. Sometimes he finds metastases as well. But that time it's too late. So of the two cancers, th this is the worst. But they're both 
the BRCA gene is responsible for both. In other words, a woman who's carrying a BRCA gene has a greater chance of having one of these cancers, or both of them, um, uh, joining her lifetime. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that every woman who has a BRCA gene will inevitably die of cancer of the breast or, or, or ovary. If she lives long enough, you know, if she lives to 120, then maybe at the age of 120, and she lived to 121, at the age of 121, she would get breast cancer or ovarian cancer. It's not inevitable. People die from all sorts of other diseases as well. But she has a much greater chance in her lifetime of coming uh, to grips with one of these cancers than someone who's BRCA negative. Um, the next problem is that if she's going to get a breast cancer, and very many of these uh, young women, uh, it comes on much earlier in life than the normal, quote unquote, uh, breast cancer, very cancer, which comes on much later on in life in the BRCA negative, negative women. Um, the third problem is that this BRCA gene is more common in Jews than in non-Jews, especially in Ashkenazi Jews. So how do you grapple with this problem? Please take note of this. I've said this already, but one has to remember that we're dealing with statistics. And statistics are never, never, never 100% for the single individual. So how does medicine grapple with this? As far as the breast cancer is concerned, first of all, close follow-up, uh, as I said before, self-examination by the woman herself, uh, and then regular examination by, by people who are trained to, to examine breasts. Um, number two, there's prophylactic medication that uh, these women can be given uh, with, uh, with and obviously there's the possibility of both, not just the possibility, but the strong recommendation that they have the first two as well. What are the chances of completely uh, distancing yourself from breast cancer? Uh, not good. It's 60%, it's, uh, that kind of thing, but nowhere near 100%. And so we come to the third modality, which is uh, bilateral mastectomy. One would think that bilateral mastectomy would give you a clean bill of health and that you would never ever get breast cancer because you have no breasts. It's wrong. You can have breast cancer without breasts, strange as it may seem. So even that third mortality, as harsh and, and, and savage as it is, does not prevent the woman 100% from having breast cancer. It's far, far greater backing average than the first two, even the first two put together. But it's 100%. For the ovaries, there is no follow-up as I brought up. The only way to be 100% certain that you're not going to get uh, ovarian cancer is to have your ovaries out long before the, they develop cancer and certainly before the, you have metastasis. And so you're going to take a young woman who has, let's say, a mother of uh, 40 or 50 or a sister of 40, and this young woman is 16, 17, 18, 20, and the uh, mother or older sister has breast cancer and the geneticist uh, do her genes and she has BRCA gene. So we now have a family where there's one patient with a BRCA gene and what do you do with the other members of the family? In particular, the younger members of the family. You're going to tell a 16-year-old or 18-year-old girl or 20-year-old girl to have ovaries out, to have a breast out. You're going to tell her she has a high chance of Higher, higher chance of having breast cancer and, 
I put her into a state of, 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 of almost a psychiatric illness, certainly in a lot of stress for the rest of her life, when she may never ever develop uh, breast cancer or ovarian cancer. I said, of course, not 100%. What are you going to do as in the case that I went to see Dr. Goshu about, where a woman was diagnosed with charisetic with breast cancer and BRCA positive, and she had sisters, and she had young daughters, and the people who were dealing with her, this is not my field, obviously, the people who were dealing with her wanted her permission to call in the female members of her family to have their genes tested. And she said, no, I refuse to give permission. I don't want anyone to know that I've got breast cancer. I've got young daughters to marry off, and I don't want neighbors talking about me. I don't want pity from anyone. I'm going to fight this disease on my own. What do you do? Uh, I don't know about here, but certainly in Israel, the patient says, no, it's no. You cannot, uh, against her wishes, go and inform someone else. And the question here in halacha is, is this woman a rodef? Rodef has a very special term in, 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 in halacha. Rodef is, I'm trying to chase, I'm not trying, I am chasing you in order to kill you. I'm a rodef, I'm running after you in order to kill. This is the only, one of the few reasons why a Jew is allowed to kill another Jew is because he is being attacked in order to be killed, or someone else, an innocent person, is being attacked to be killed by this Jew, another Jew who has the, has the right to try and stop that. First of all, by maiming the Rodev, and, and if he can't do so for whatever reason, then by killing him, it's the only way he can kill him. Now, this woman isn't chasing her sisters or her mother, so she's not an active Rodev. But she is preventing life-saving information being passed on to other members of her family, which may save their lives. So she's a kind of passive role. It's not as, it's not as severe as someone who's actively chasing you in order to kill you. But nevertheless, there is a question here. And the question is, does that supersede the laws of the state, which says you know, patient autonomy and patient's wishes uh, are, are, are sacred and one cannot go against it? What would Halakha say about this? So I went to see Rabbi Yoshif Shlita, this I've been back many, many years. I talked to him about this. I told him more or less what I told you just now. And uh, he asked me a lot of questions about the statistics and about the, the results of treatment and all the rest of it. I also want to point you out something else to you. There's more and more literature today that a woman who has both of her breasts removed with her husband's permission there's an awful lot of psychiatric disease as a result of this. There's a lot of problems with shalom bite between husband and wife, even though they both went into this mutilating operation knowing what the score was. This is something that one can't prevent, one can treat, obviously, but this is a real, real uh, side effect of, of this, of, uh, of this uh, operation. Um, and I talked to him about this and said, okay, so Halakha would say that if I was living in a state where there was a Sanhedrin, there was a Betin, and we were living according to Torah, I could say to the mother, to this, to this poor woman with the breast cancer, never mind what you say, I'm going to call in your relatives, they have a right to know, and, and, uh, and receive uh, whatever treatment medicine can offer her. And his answer was no. You have no right to do this. Not because of the laws of the state. I've said this before to other people, Rabbanim will listen carefully to what doctors say. They will not listen at all to what lawyers say. Um, so the law of the state says no, but that doesn't affect Allah. His, his reasoning was different. He says you have no way of forcing this woman to agree to what you want to do uh, and going against her will. 
you have so many ifs and buts all along the line. Your diagnosis, your, 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 your treatment, your side effects, the effects on the family, the effects on young people, uh, and, and disastrous as it may be uh, of not telling them, he was more frightened of the disastrous effects of, of telling them and of what we have to offer today. If, if Bezrat Hashem, something better comes along with less side effects that we can offer these people, the halakha may well change. But in the situation in which I spoke there, which is still true today, uh, his answer was a definitive no. You must not tell these people. And I, and I spoke to my own rover of Neuvet as well, and he was equally as adamant that uh, until we have something better to offer the families, obviously the woman herself must be, must be given every single uh, treatment that's necessary. She must have, obviously have the breast removed. The question is, will she have the normal breast removed as well because she carries the gene? What do you do with her ovaries? Maybe those should be removed as well. Those are questions which has to be dealt with on, on an individual scale. And obviously this is not the place to, to give out piske halacha. I'm, I'm merely talking in general terms, merely trying to put you into the picture of, 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 of uh, very great difficulties that post-team um, are facing based on the difficulties that doctors are facing. We have nothing to offer our patients, which is clear-cut. Um, I mean, I know if you, if you have congestive heart failure, I know exactly what treatment you should get. I have clear-cut ideas of what you should get. I have clear-cut ideas of what the side effects of this treatment, what the effects of the treatment. I have no, no question marks in, 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 in that thing. But when it comes to something like this, uh, the, the scenario is entirely different. So there we have it, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I uh, have taken up uh, your time, and I hope and I hope I've managed to at least, in some small way, give you a picture of of, uh, of where genetic uh, counselling and, and testing stands in halacha today. Um, I'm willing to listen to your questions. Whether I can answer them is another matter. Just to clarify, what would the I didn't say that. I said there's a good place to ask a Shaila, and there's a good possibility that you'll get a head. But it's not a blank check. You don't go with the, with the, with the uh, sonography uh, findings directly to the obstetrics uh, surgeon and say, book me tomorrow. Yeah. The Rav has to stand in the middle first. And in general, That's a whole subject on its own, but if I was to answer you standing on one leg, um, abortion is um, uh, on the whole not permitted. There are obvious reasons where it is not only permitted, but there's obligation. And, and the best reason I can, I can give you is when the mother's life is in danger. And where we have the fetus and the mother, the fetus has a din of rodef. If the mother wasn't pregnant, she wouldn't, her life wouldn't be in danger. Uh, in such a case, it's clear-cut. It's clear and if it's absolutely certain that this baby is the cause of a mother's being in danger, abortion will be permitted without any problem. There are obviously gray, gray areas where the mother is in danger from some other underlying disease before she became pregnant. And the pregnancy merely increases the danger. The pregnancy, the, the, the childbirth itself, and so on and so forth. These have to be dealt with on an individual basis. Um, Childbirth can be C-section as opposed to, to, to natural birth, but there's much less stress on the mother, and so on and so forth. And there are situations where, where severe, severe disease in a baby, in a fetus, 
where the fetus has no claim to life, as I've, as I've said before, and that's something that has to be defined, and I don't have time for that, um, may well uh, allow a post to say, yes, you can, have a, you can have abortion. So abortion isn't a clear black and white situation. Yes, every, every, every fetus that you want can be aborted. No, no fetus can be aborted as, as others, other, other religions may have. Uh, we take every case uh, on its own. But in broad terms, using a very, very broad brush, this is what uh, the situation is. Yeah. Um, just in general terms, when speaking to David Dolan, how did they balance common here and general catalog and all genetic testing with just the idea in general? Like, what responsibility with progression of science does one have to do tests, and at what point is it too much or excessive? Um, that will obviously depend. I'm not quite sure what you mean by Alta or the Dabrecha. I know what the possibility no, no, is, but I don't see that. Tom I'm sorry? Tom and Tia, in my shamalaka. Ah, uh, never go to a doctor? You know, I don't have to work either. Money grows on trees. Coming to you with Shemakeka, the worker will send me manna from heaven. There'll be a well coming up in the middle of my house. Well, not in my house, in the garden. Um, I mean, the, 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 there's a possible suggestion of a None of you people, including myself, have the right to practice medicine at all if there wasn't those two words in the Torah. Verapo Yerapo. Otherwise, it's not telling to you. You're interfering with the works of God. God decided this man's going to have pneumonia and he's going to die. And you come along and say, God, I don't care what you say, I'm going to give this man penicillin and he's going to live. And you give him penicillin and he lives. Where do we stand here? You're fighting God? What right have you got to do this? Verapo Yerapo. God created the world in such a way that we are, we are bound by, by what we call nature. Nature obviously is, is, is not a God on its own. It's not, a, not something that exists. It's part and parcel of the way that God runs this world. But he doesn't create miracles, and certainly not obvious miracles, every single time like he did in the desert, in the 40 years that I saw in the desert. Nature runs the world because this is how God wanted the world to be run, by nature. And nature means that people are ill. Nature means that people have accidents. Nature means that people have sorrow and trouble. And, and nature also means that certain people have the way and means of counteracting this. Doctors in terms of, of, of physical illness, mental illness, and, and our body in terms of, of, giving, of giving help and, 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 and support. And we to each other as well, not being a doctor, not being a rock helping your neighbor and helping someone who's in trouble, giving sadaka, chesed, all of these things come into play. So it's nothing to do with coming to him in Mishim This is what it means. After you've done all of this, coming to him in Mishim there's a very, I'm sorry if I take up another couple of minutes of your time, there's a very interesting halacha in Shofan You know, the, the Gemara says that, which territory you happen to take out that day, it, it requires mazal. There's some sefer which are on the side there, which we can take on once a year, maybe once, a, once in ten years, and others are taken on every single day, for whatever reason. The halachas in Shochan Aruch, which we turn over inside out and upside down in order to keep. Some of them are just humorous. We keep them, because it's in Shochan Aruch. And there are other halachas in Shochan Aruch that people don't even know exist in the Shochan Aruch. I remember many years ago, a very good friend of mine had to undergo an operation in, in the hospital. I went to see him at uh, 7.30 in the morning before they took him downstairs to the, to the uh, operating theater. 
And I said to him, I said, you've said the Yerotsu, just, just to remind you, you know, you should say it before they, they stick needles at you because it will be too late. He said to me, what do you hear also? This man knows Hoshim Mishpat virtually by heart with the three brothers. But he'd never, he said, what do you hear also? There's a, there's a Seif in Shukhan Oroch, Reish Lamed, Seif Dalit, which says that before every single medical procedure, which the Buddha says this, you have to say, now, that's not just a, a prayer to God. It's much more than that. It's an assertion that the doctor is only a go-between. He's only a tool. And you are saying to Akash even now when this doctor is going to save my life by operating on me, I know that you are the true healer. And not him. He's only a, a, a go-between. And we don't, we don't... How many people here... Tell the truth. How many people here... Put up your hands. How many people here knew about this Allah? Very few. Wow, great, fantastic. Sorry. It, it, but but <coughs> people, people who keep Shabbos and, and know all about it, never heard of the Salah. So, means to realize in every act you do. I always tell this, and, and I was taken to task by, by some a woman who, when I was writing my English, my English, my English book, and she, was, she looked at it and she said, how can you say such a thing? Said, you don't really mean it. I said there, that when a child falls and gets a cut, a four-year-old, five-year-old falls and gets a cut on his, on his, on his hand. So what, the mother, what does the mother do with, the, with this child? She first of all gives him a kiss. Then she wipes off the blood and, and, and washes it, and then she puts a band-aid on it. End of story. How many people in this world have had infections with a band-aid? And how many people without a band-aid have not had infections? It's not the band-aid. It's God who decides whether you're going to have an infection or not. And this mother had a golden opportunity to teach her child, four years old, that there is more than band-aids than, than in this world. There's a creator, and it's he who decides. And that is Tamim Tiyah Mishim. Okay. There are times when we wouldn't do a medical procedure based on I agree with you, but I, I, I'm a little bit concerned with this, with this, with this quotation of Tanitia. As I said before, I don't think this is the place. The place is because today we have nothing to do except abort. Were we to have something to abort, then Tanitia wouldn't apply. Therefore, I wouldn't apply it in the first place. It's a question of what we're going to do. Are we going to kill a child just because it's going to have six fingers instead of five? And, and people do this. They don't want a child with six fingers. They want a child, a normal child. This is not normal. Therefore, abort it. You know, it's like throwing away, throwing away this cup when I finish drinking. It's, it's, that's where we've come. We've, you know, I, I keep telling people, we're not on the slippery slope. Forget it. We're down at the bottom already. Go to Oregon and you'll and you, and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah? In terms of the, uh, the future fertilization of testing of the fetus beforehand, um, if there's a known relative in the family that has the disease, do they test, are you allowed to test locally just for that specific no, 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 no. Uh, it's very difficult because when the when the when the geneticist takes that cell, uh, he or she is looking for for the abnormal gene. 
she may find other abnormal genes, and obviously this is not what I would say rare. It's probably uncommon, but it's certainly not rare. Um, but that may be a chance finding, and she has to, he or she has to know how to deal with it. But the m moment she finds this, I keep saying she because the, her work with the geneticist was a woman. She, she trained under me, and she's now a geneticist, so I, I keep thinking of her when I talk about genetic disease. Um, um, so, obviously, they'd be looking for that particular disease. If they find something else, then, then, then that's something else that has to be dealt with. Yeah? Why does OBS require a sibling who's had the disease? Why did the carrier status? I think I mentioned this before. This test is not easy. There are false positives and false negatives, and it's it's catastrophic to go and 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 and, and assume that the test is negative and put back uh, uh, embryos, pre-embryos, which are in fact genetically affected, or the other way around. Okay, it destroyed perfectly normal uh, uh, pre-embryos because you think that they are positive for this type or the other disease. And therefore, based on this, he wants cast iron proof that this disease really exists. Otherwise, as I said before, every single couple can, can, can say, I'm not going to have a baby until I know that you know, I'm 100% perfect, 99% is 99% good enough for me. And obviously, that, we can't live with that kind of thing. Yeah? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. The explanation of Maya Alma in terms of the physical realities might be an experiment for the initial Sabron, which checked participating in the Shita of a mother to see if the fetus would stay alive even in the absence of maternal life. And I'm wondering if comment on the use of experimentation to look at physical reality with respect to a lot of outcomes and the Rechazah. I'm not sure I, I, I understand what you're getting at. I mean, I mean, you're talking yeah, about uh, experimentation on what state? Are you talking about this particular case or in general? No, 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 no. There was an animal experimentation. I checked with a mother uh, animal to see if the Gemara said that, that a baby cannot live if, if the mother is not breathing. Oh, 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 oh. You're talking about the sheep experiment? Yes. <laughs> That sheep experiment has been misquoted more than any other experiment that I know. <laughs> Rav Obach was the was the brains behind this. He, he was trying to answer a very simple tosis. The tosis wants to say that uh, no baby can live longer than the mother. The mother is the source of life for this baby, and therefore, if the mother dies, and, and the Rama, the Rama passes this in in Hilchos Shabbos you're not allowed to do a C-section on a mother that's just died in order to save the baby, because in, in the Ramah's time, there was no way of being absolutely certain that the mother wasn't yet still a gosis. And, and, and they didn't have stethoscopes in those days. You put your ear to the mother's chest, and if the mother was, was obese or, or, or you, whatever, you could miss a heartbeat. Uh, even today, I mean, there are cases even today, and I, I'm witness to the fact that as a young doctor, uh, when I was in England, uh, man was brought in, uh, BID, brought in dead by the ambulance people. A doctor had checked it, and he was dead, and he came into the, uh, to, to us to get, a, to get a confirmation, and his heart was beating. So I, I, can, I can testify that mistakes can be made, and there for the grace of God go I. You know, it's, we're all human. So, so, so um, 
as I say, this, this, is, this is something that, uh, that uh, one, one, has to, one has to realize what, what he wanted. He, he wanted to answer this question. The child cannot live more than the, the, than the mother. Is this true forever and ever, amen? Or is this only true under the circumstances of the Gemara? And he postulated that it is only true when the child could not be given what the mother is giving the child all the time, which is oxygen. If, it, if the child could be given oxygen, even though the mother was dead, really dead, not brain dead, really dead, and the child could still be born alive, then this shows that halakhically the Gemara was only talking about their particular situation. And this is what we did. We took a, we took a, a sheep which was, which was due. Uh, the head was, he, literally the sheep was beheaded, saving the arteries so that the, there was no loss of blood. And, and, and uh, the sheep was intubated, the neck was still there, and, and 100% oxygen was poured into, 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 the, into the sheep. And the baby uh, lived for, for, I can't remember now, 40 minutes or so before spontaneous uh, um, birth took place. And perfectly life lamb came out, and, and I've never seen anything like it. Half an hour later, this lamb was walking around. I've never seen a baby do that, but uh, a lamb certainly. And uh, this, is, this is something, and, and he was overjoyed when he came back and told him this. It has nothing to do with brain death. He wanted to make sure what this tosis was talking about. The meaning of? Well, I mean, we all we all try to we all try to do this. I have a whole series of slides in which in which, uh, by hindsight, uh, I would get the Nobel Prize if, if I had foresight, but I don't. I only have hindsight um, about about what Hazal meant. You know, two thousand years ago, um, let's take artificial re- respiration, mouth to mouth. Okay, um, when I when I qualified uh, in 1960. Uh, we didn't have artificial respiratory mouth to mouth. It wasn't, wasn't known then. My, my professor of physiology, two or three years before then, uh, taught us how to resuscitate a patient who wasn't breathing. And he said, you take a barrel, and you put the patient's stomach down on the barrel, and you roll the barrel. And someone in the back of the class put up his hand and said, sir, where do I find the barrel? <laughs> uh, and obviously, your, your chance of success was zero. Uh, now, in the last uh, 40, 40 years or so, mouth-to-mouth respiration has saved countless lives, not just by doctors, but by young kids, okay, who've been taught how to do mouth-to-mouth respiration. Is this in Chazal? I bet if I ask you, ask you where is this in, in Chazal, you would say either Eliyahu or Elisha, one of those two examples. You'd be wrong, because if you look at the Psukim in Eliyahu and Elisha, there is no even hint of artificial respiration. Eliyahu, I believe, I get mixed up between those two. Either Eliyahu walked up and down, davening, and I would, I would throw a, a, a doctor who went up and down davening when the patient codes, I'd throw him from the top of the, of the highest building I could find. There's no business davening. Go, that's for a Roth. You, you work on the patient. And Elisha uh, lay full body on the young child. Now, if that child had the slightest breath still left in his lungs, that would have been pushed out. <laughs> so that's not. But if you look at Yalkut Shimoni, Yalkut Shimoni was written 1,500 years ago, give or take 100 years. 1,500 years ago. There's an accurate description of mouth-to-mouth and mouth-to-nose uh, breathing in order to resuscitate someone who had stopped breathing. So if you ask me, did Hazal know what they were talking about? Yes, 1,500 years before we did. Yalkut Shimoni, if you're interested, talks about the 12 tribes. 
who came from the twelve uh, spies that, that Moshe Rabbeinu sent into Israel to, to spy out the land. And they came in from the south, they came to Hebron. And in Hebron there were giants. And these giants were so tall that they looked down upon these big, stocky Yidden as being locusts. So you can imagine how tall they must have been. And they looked down there and they'd never seen anything, any pygmies of that size. So they looked down there and Yalkushimoni says that Talmai, the, the king of, the, of these giants, let out a scream, a scream of surprise, of I don't know what, but a scream. And, and the sound of that scream was such that these 12 strong men fell to the ground and died. The, the Magin of Raham, who, who explains this, Yalkushimoni says, he says they stopped breathing. Yalkushimoni says, just that they, the shamas, the shamas left them. And then this is a beautiful passage in Yom Shemoni. I saw this long time ago, and like an idiot that I am, I didn't cut it on that here I could win the Nobel Prize by, by bringing him out to my respiration. <laughs> but like everything else, I put two letters, which are the most famous letters in Shas, Sadeq Ayn, Surik And that's the way I, I get around with all my problems. And the Yom Shemoni says that these giants knelt down and put their mouths to their mouths and their mouths to their noses, the exact words, and breathed it into them. And says the Magin Abraham, and resuscitated them. Now, if that isn't a description, 1,500 years ago, mouth-to-mouth respiration, I don't know any better explanation. Okay, it would make the New England Journal of Medicine without any problem. There you are. So, of course we have to use our, our clinical acumen in order, to, in order to try and help people. What does I'll talk about it? Sorry for you. Yeah. Just, I don't want to harp on the PGD subject, but we were saying before, like, if you're, we would like to say that for two of, like, a boy and a girl who find out that they're carriers for Patex or Canavans or any of these rare recessive disorders that aren't going to come, most likely aren't going to come with a family member who had the disorder previously, we're willing to say that they shouldn't get married. But if they find out after getting married, we're willing to say then that instead of taking a, um, a procedure that potentially could relieve them of having children who have this disorder, rather they should take the 25% chance until until there's a child that does have this disorder. Or I have heard in the name of I think of her Tendler who said that it's possible that it is what they're to do once you have a carrier status on both on both the mother and the father to do it. Yeah, yeah, no question, no question. Uh, I, 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 thank you very much. I forgot to mention that one. I mentioned two, two, uh, two uh, good indications for doing this. I forgot to mention this, and I thank you for, for reminding me. If you know that the mother and, 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 and father-to-be are carriers, there's no question you can, you can permit PGD. Um, whether you would nowadays say to them, you know, you better not get married, is another question. It depends a lot of other factors, you know, how much he's got in his bank balance and all that. Very good. <laughs> Yeah. Just one more question. Is there an issue with discarding embryos with Issue with discarding embryos. The question is, when does life begin? If the embryo is alive, and obviously you're killing the embryo, which is no different from killing a fetus. If the embryo is not alive. Then, then there's no problem. You're discarding a, a piece of material, a piece of, uh, of whatever, whatever, uh, whatever embryo is made of. I'm not quite sure cells, but no more than that. Uh, then there's no problem. And halakhically, life starts at the moment of conception in the womb of the mother, not when conception, quotes unquote, takes place in the laboratory. So a pre-embryo, which by definition is 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 fertilization outside the mother is not alive. So much so 
that Ravosna uh, Shrita, sorry, Ravosna Shrita, uh, who is the, one of the great poskim in, in Eresistor and in Bnei Prak, uh, writes in his tshuva that if you had pre-embryos in your, in your uh, um, incubator, um, waiting for a chance to be able to put it back into, into the mother, say she's having IVF, and you took more than what you need in case the first time round she fails, then you have pre-embryos available to try a second time, and there's a fire in your laboratory, and those embryos are going to be burnt, and it's Shabbos. You're not allowed to mechal Shabbos in order to save those embryos. They're not alive. You're not allowed to mechal Shabbos Torah law. Rav Neuvert, author of Shimon Shabbos, says you're not even allowed to mechal Shabbos to Rabbanan. In other words, I'm not allowed to call the fire brigade. Go in. Not in Israel. You guys. The fire brigade. Here. I'm not allowed to call them. And that's only in Israel the Rabbanan. Amir al-Nokhli is only in Israel the Rabbanan. I'm not allowed to do that. They're not alive. So therefore, there's no problem in discarding pre-embryos. On the contrary, what are you going to do with these pre-embryos? So you save them. I say the, the, the parents have, have, have two kids or three kids, and they say, stop, I don't want any more. They had IVF, she's had enough. It's, it's, IVF is not an easy procedure, particularly for the mother, but even for the father. Uh, the mother certainly will suffer during the whole procedure of IVF. And she's had enough, she's got two kids, boy and a girl, what more do you want from her? She doesn't want any more. The embryo, pre-embryos, what are you going to do with it? So some people use it to implant into strangers. And that's, that's a real danger. Those embryos, if they were alive, would be Jewish embryos. They came from a Jewish couple. And who knows who they'll go to? And who says it's mutter in the first place? So on the contrary, it's better to discard them and to make sure that they are discarded than to cause problems in terms of, of uh, who these uh, babies are when, if they were implanted somewhere else and born. What about Stem cells? Yeah. To do what? To create embryos? Or to... Or to if you're creating these embryos or using these pre-embryos for stem cells. Well, there's no difference. Stem cells can be used to, to... I mean, we're talking about Dolly, except that Dolly was a sheep and she was born. But we're talking before she was born. Um, if, you, if, you do, if you take stem cells, and, and how do you get stem cells? You have to have fertilization in the first place. When I talked about six, eight cells, they are stem cells. And you can get to 200, and they're all stem cells. And it's one of the, one of the miracles of, of life. Think about it. These 200 cells in, in, in an embryo, pre-embryo, are exactly alike. There's no, no way we can differentiate between one and the other. And you can use them for, for whatever. Um, but at some stage, at about that stage, some of those cells will start going north and some of those cells will start going south. And the ones going north, some of them will become bone and become a skull, and the others will become brain, and the others will become eye. Who tells them what to do? Who tells this cell to go north and not to go south? Why aren't you born with your brain in your feet? Some of us have brains in our feet, but okay. But, but, but why, why, why do, how do these cells, who, who's, who's telling them where to go? Where are the red lights and the green lights? And obviously, this is, this is part and parcel of, a, of an everyday occurrence of a, of a miracle, except that we don't look upon it. It's so common that by us, well, it's a miracle. But just scratch the surface and you'll see the Shekhinah there. And every one, every single baby that's born, the Shekhinah is there. And Chazal said, here you are, when Chazal said there are three partners in, in, in every child that's born, and the Shekhinah, well, that, that's where the Shekhinah is. That's where the Shekhinah is, telling the baby to have two hands and not three, and not one, and one head and not two. And, and in the vast majority of cases, the very, very vast majority of cases, most babies that are born are absolutely normal. And that's a miracle. 
So you can you can use stem cells for, for this kind of thing. But uh, if you go with your with your stem cells for treating disease uh, as 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 one does today, um, hematological diseases, uh, a lot of research is, is is being done to try and and channel these stem cells not becoming a fetus but becoming a liver, all of them, uh, or becoming a heart in order to be able to use for transplants. If Hashem, all this comes out and it becomes a reality, then the whole problem of, of transplantation from human to human disappears. And there's no danger, there's no donor, there's no danger to a donor, everyone becomes healthy and all you have to do is take a heart that you've created in a laboratory from stem cells and human heart and put it into, into the, uh, poor, the poor sick person. These are, these are things for the future, but, but stem cell research, as far as halacha is concerned, there are limitations. Uh, I won't go into it now because you have to give me another hour. Uh, but the, the limitations, but within those limitations, halacha will, will bless the whole line of research in stem cells because the ultimate reason for this research is to cure illness or to treat illness. Thank you very much.